the audience is listening. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 29 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel we have Andrew Madsen. Hi, from Salt Lake City. James Uber. Hello, from Minneapolis. Rod Schmidt. Hello, from Salt Lake. I'm Charles Maxwood from DoveChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Joel Stewart. Greetings, also from Minneapolis. Joel, do you want to introduce yourself for those of us who uh, may not know who you are? Sure. I'm currently the VP of Engineering at a company called Canopy up in Minneapolis. We're a startup that is focusing on iPhone accessories. Um, we do everything from hardware all the way up the stack to applications. Um, and we partner with a lot of content providers to uh, integrate our functionality with our hardware into their applications as well. I Me mean, personally, I've been doing video game development for the last six, seven years and have recently gotten involved in hardware. And yeah, about it. Awesome. So you're going to make a video game controller for the iPad? Oh, hell yeah. What kind of hardware things are you building? Well, our first product is called Census, and it is an iPhone case, and it adds pressure-sensitive multi-touch panels to the back of your iPhone and also the edges. So it can enable functionality such as squeezing to scroll as opposed to using your thumb on the front of the screen to drag the contents around. You could just squeeze the edges, and the content would automatically scroll. We do a lot of other things such as you know moving kind of that touch-and-drag functionality to the back moving environments as opposed to characters in the front, just kind of adding an extra layer of interaction to your applications or your games through that hardware. Um, it talks through your iPhone through the Lightning connector right now, and it is part of Apple's MFI program, which is made for iPhone. You have something you have to apply for, and uh, it has an entire swath of documentation that the general public typically doesn't get access to. Interesting. So is there some kind of trick to building hardware for iOS devices? Is there some kind of trick? It'd be uh, similar to most uh, most hardware products you create. So you have a lot of industrial design, which is basically the plastics, a lot of mechanical engineering, which is identifying what materials go into it, electrical engineering, you know, laying up those boards, firmware development, software development. I don't know, it's, it's a much larger undertaking than just writing software. The process is a lot longer, it's a lot more expensive, and it's not easy, that's for sure. And you have to provide a driver to go with the hardware? For the most part, no. Since we're talking through Apple's Lightning Connector, most of that protocol is already established. So they provide a lot of documentation as to how to talk to the core operating system, iOS, as well as up into applications using the external accessory session protocols. So most of it's already written for us. You must be in the Made for iPhone program, which to use the Lightning Connector, right? Yes, yep. So that's something that's not really available to everyone. You have to apply and, and get accepted. Right. Um, it used to be very restrictive to get into the MFI program five years ago. It was not not something just anyone could apply for. I think it was about 3% of applicants would actually get accepted into the program. Nowadays, they've, they've opened it up quite a bit. You can actually just go to, I think it's apple.com slash MFI and, and apply for the license there. They usually just look for a business entity uh, you know, behind everything, make sure that all your your documents are in the right order and everything. But then that's kind of step one. Step two is you actually have to submit a product plan to them, saying here's the product I want to build. It's going to use this type of connector. Here's what it's going to do, etc. And they'll either approve or reject that product plan based upon what other product plans are in the market. It's a great way for them to make sure that their market does not get flooded with copycats. They prefer to have just one company making uh, a singular product. 
So that, that kind of helps um, kind of the barrier to entry for competitors. It's really it's a great ecosystem to play in, in that regard. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, that, that does make sense. I know somebody who applied for that program probably three years ago, and they didn't have such a great experience. Mm -hmm. and, but it sounds like it's gotten better now. Yeah, we um, applied for it. I think the original company before Canopy was called Canopy. They applied for it, I think, the better part of four years ago, and they got in. And then we had to do a reapplication about a year ago. But that went through pretty easily. So you use the Lightning Connector. Does Apple give you a, a high-level API to talk, or are you using sort of low-level stuff? This is all kind of hidden unless you're in the program, and I've yep. been curious about it. I'll try and share. I won't reference any particular documentation, but just kind of more general stuff because there are certain NDAs in place, whatever. But sure. you talk over IAP and you actually get a very specific type of connector. So there's a few variants. You have the connector determines like uh, whether the phone is going to talk over USB host mode or USB device mode or uh, kind of a serial connection. The connector determines that if you've ever ripped open one of the lightning connectors or looked at you know, some of the disassembly diagrams, you'll see that there's actually a large amount of circuitry embedded into that actual lightning connector. And that kind of tells the phone how it's going to communicate over this connector. And then it's up to you to implement the proper stack underneath it, whether it's a USB stack or just a simple serial connection. Cool. Do you uh, have any thoughts about maybe doing a device that connects through a lightning connector or uh, Bluetooth? Or are they usually completely different devices that do Bluetooth? Typically, you'll choose one or the other. To talk over Bluetooth, if you want to use the new BLE, Bluetooth Low Energy 4.0 stuff, um, you actually don't even need an, the MFI approval. You can do that outside of Apple's program. But to use you know, anything 2.0 or 3.0, the more traditional Bluetooth, you do have to still go through Apple's program. But otherwise, typically we won't. Right now, the overhead of adding on a Bluetooth chip and that communication is pretty substantial both in terms of engineering efforts and the cost of materials, et cetera. So, because you have to add, then uh, start talking about a battery. <laughs> There's a lot of other certifications you have to go through as soon as you start emitting wireless signals. Yeah, it's, it's a large rabbit hole as soon as you start down that road. Well, and with your application, with the case that's physically surrounding the phone, Bluetooth doesn't seem to make as much sense. Yeah, not at this time. Seems like a lot of companies go the Bluetooth route. Is there any reason for that? I was going to ask that question a different way, and that is, uh, what types of devices lend themselves better to one or the other? I don't really know a concrete answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's up for interpretation. I think there are a lot of game controllers that are coming out in the next six months here that will be using Bluetooth LE or Bluetooth. And I, I'm not sure why they chose that route as opposed to using the Lightning Connector. You know, to talk over Apple's MFI game controller uh, APIs, you still have to apply for that MFI license, which would give you access to the lightning connectors, etc. But I'm not sure why they would use the Bluetooth chip um, as opposed to the lightning. The lightning connector does carry a pretty high cost. It's not cheap because Apple bakes a royalty into every single connector that they sell to you. In the grand scheme of things, it's probably more expensive than the Bluetooth if you know, your battery solution is like double A's or triple A's, which I think some of the game controllers coming out are using that. I'm thinking of uh, the Moga one, I think, uses batteries and triple A's. Could be wrong. Well, one reason that they might choose to use Bluetooth is so they can talk to the Apple TV. That's also a thought, yep. At some point. <laughs> Not now. <but. laughs> I was going to say. 
It does mean, though, that you can talk to, to Max with modern Max all have Bluetooth LE built in. They obviously don't have lightning connectors. Right. I think the choice really comes down to what agency do you want to deal with? Do you want to deal with Apple or, like, the U.S. government? Tell you that your stuff is okay. <laughs> pick, pick your poison. There are actually Bluetooth... It depends on your application, of course. There are these Bluetooth LE modules that you can buy that already have the certification, and as long as you don't change the RF characteristics of those by, for example, putting the, uh, you know, changing the antenna, you don't have to get your own certification. That's true. Yep. So Bluetooth doesn't have to be terribly expensive. Well, of course, you you pay extra for those pre-engineered modules, but it doesn't have to be a terrible regulatory nightmare. Uh, in the U.S., depending upon the country, you may have to go through retesting, depending upon how significant a kind of a footprint that device is having. So, for instance, Australia has one of the more restrictive certification processes. And even if you buy one of those off-the-shelf products, you're still going to have to go through a fair amount of cert testing with them. So, Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, Having to deal with the laws in a bunch of different countries is not necessarily fun. Nope. So what challenges have you run into... Uh connecting a device through the lightning adapter. Hmm. Smooth sailing. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not, not, as, not too much. I think the biggest challenges have to do with the design of how we actually get a case to kind of have a retractable lightning plug so I can drop the phone in and, you know, insert it and still be classified as a case. So Apple has a lot of different certification processes you go through, both from MFI to RF interference to what they just call a general case certification. And their case certification is kind of the most difficult one. It's what you have to go through to make sure that you can get your product into Apple retail. And some of their requirements are very vague. It's just a very black box. You throw it over the fence and they say, yes, you passed. No, you didn't. And they won't really tell you why, typically. And so you basically have to work with Apple and some of the people on the outside of that box to say, here's what we've seen failed. Here's what we've seen pass." You should probably avoid cases that have this type of design, et cetera. And one of those is what they call basically a slider. If there's any part of the case that has any sort of like friction or movement along the phone, typically those will get rejected. So if you ever go into Apple retail store and look at what's on the shelf, you very rarely see a case that has any sort of sliding aspect to it, which makes it really difficult to create a kind of a form-fitting enclosure that has, you know, a lightning plug that would... <laughs> be inserted into it. So that's been one of the most difficult challenges over the last year. So we've designed this, um, coming up with kind of a, that industrial design that really works well from a consumer standpoint that's easy to insert and remove that plug and still falling within kind of the crazy unknown restrictions of Apple. That makes sense. I, I don't know if you've been to CES, but uh, they have a whole room, and by room I mean like a whole convention room yeah. <laughs> full of booths selling iPhone cases and accessories. So can I assume that most of those don't go through the process of getting approved as an Apple case? Correct. Yeah, most of them will not get approved. And they don't even bother going through that process because they don't really care to be in Apple's retail channel. Yeah. And yes, I was. we were at CES last year out in what was termed case wasteland. Yeah, we walked up about three aisles and we were like, we're going to go to the other room. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I might make it out this year, so I'll keep an eye out for you guys. Very good. So walk me through the process. Let's say that I have this brilliant and original idea that I'm going to make an alarm clock with speakers on it that I can plug my iPhone into the top of. That's a brilliant idea. I yeah. know, and it's it's totally unique. I mean, nobody's done this before. 
So, so, so what's the process that I go through to build my product? Assuming that I have a guy or a team of guys that know how to make alarm clocks and, you know, so they can design the display and the speaker and everything. Sure. Well, if you're going to talk over the lightning connector, the first thing you'll want to do is to get that MFI license. So you'll need to go through Dun and Bradstreet and get your, all that business legal entity stuff squared away, your Dun's number, whatever that is. Make sure that you get the license from Apple. You know, like I said, nowadays, I think it's a lot more open, so it's likely you'll get it. I think you'll submit a product plan which describes what you're trying to make. And that's all on your end. And then the product plan approval can take anywhere from one to five weeks, maybe six weeks. You'll be assigned kind of a representative within Apple's MFI team that you'll be in contact with, and they'll ask you questions, and they'll look for any sort of what would be like red flags on their end. You know, making sure that you're not trying to do things that they don't want you to do, such as attaching a big old hard drive so you can store music files on it or something like that. <laughs> Although I think they might even allow that. <laughs> might be a bad example. So once you have your product plan approval, then you can start ordering the Lightning Connector components and the authentication chip components from uh, Abnet, and they'll provide a special portal. And you'll pay a, a hefty price for those components because they're kind of just you know a small order, so, small sample quantity of these components. Then you get to work on building your hardware, basically. You'll get access to about 500 pages of documentation on the protocols that they use and how to all the different features and functionality of the core iOS that you can use to you know, get access to the library, to the music library, initiate playback, get the audio, uh, left-right channels coming through, the lightning connector, etc. And then once you're in development, um, that will obviously take some time. And you'll start, once you've kind of, you know, nailed it down and you get ready to start going through all the certifications, you'll start submitting um, self-certification reports to Apple through their systems to basically prove that you're implementing the, their stacks correctly. And then you'll have to ship their MFI team kind of a developer unit so they can actually see it and play with it and test it and make sure that it's working correctly. And then you'll eventually send one as well for testing, whether it's uh, RF testing if it needs it. And there's a lot of, there's a swath of other certifications you may fall into depending upon the type of product. And then once all that's done, then you're off to China, basically. <laughs> so. With this case that you are making, you guys are relying on third-party developers integrating support for it, right? It's something that apps can use. That yes, correct? that is that is part of our market strategy. We will be developing our own applications specifically for compatibility. We're going to be building up those apps over the next six to nine months, and we plan to release maybe ten to fifteen of our own, doing some cool things that have never been done before. Like, for instance, I can't guarantee this one's going to come out, but I'm pretty confident we'll get it out there. It's actually like a scale. So if you turn your iPhone upside down on the table and then place an object on top, it would tell you how much it weighs. Things like that. Oh, so, interesting. That sounds cool. Um, and then, yeah, we have a large large market that is kind of off the radar from the most consumers, which is tailored or targeted directly at, like, the visually impaired market. So blind people or mostly blind visually impaired people, if you ever tried to work within an iOS application from a BI standpoint or accessibility standpoint, it can be kind of a nightmare. It depends upon how much the devs, how much effort the devs put into making their application accessibility friendly, um, whether they correctly label the buttons or all these different things. But there's an element of zooming and moving around and navigation that is really difficult for the average user. VI people you know, have gotten used to it, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. 
And uh, Apple's uh, IEP2 protocol, which is the iPhone accessory protocol, it's what we use to talk to the root OS, has a lot of a lot of accessibility functionality that we can tap into. And so we're going to be adding a lot of cool things to target that market in particular and improve their life significantly. One of them is probably going to be like a Braille keyboard. So we're actually going to have about six points of contact on kind of the back and the top edge. And then just by squeezing those points, we'll actually be able to type in Braille as opposed to doing little hunt and peck functionality on the front of the screen, etc. That entire market is going to be there. Yeah, we will be leveraging third-party content providers to help. It's kind of a win-win situation for everyone. Um, as, as consumers buy the device, they're going to be looking for new applications to use with their device. So it's, it's kind of a reset on a on a new market. So if you are a, a small indie developer and you want access to, you know, the 500,000 consumers who all have a census device in the first three months, it's going to be a, a really small pond to play in and you can get a lot of visibility really quickly. If you're a large scale AAA marquee type partner and you want to remonetize or um, add functionality or get more brand recognition or placement, um, there'll be opportunities with Canopy to throw your logo on a box all those different types of things. So we have a, a large idea of how we're going to leverage content providers and our own placement in Apple retail stores to drive value to pretty much everybody involved. So if I'm like an indie developer and I want to detect, it's a census is the is the case. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I want to detect that census is is plugged in, and let's say I want to use the back of the the case as like a scroll view, so I can detect gestures on that. Mm-hmm. How would how would I do that? You have to sign up for the SDK on our website, so developer.getcensus.com, and it's a quick integration. Basically, you drop it in, you put in your uh, your info.plist, say, I'm, I can talk to this type of protocol, or talk to this accessory that speaks this protocol. And then there's, you know, the typical one-line initialization that you put in your de- app delegate. It starts it up, and then you can just start subscribing to touch events, just like for normal touch events. We built in pretty much similar objects. So a census touch looks and behaves just like a UI touch, but it has some extra data in there as well. Um, it'll go up the responder chain on a UI view stack as well. Um, create the gesture recognizers just like the built-in ones for the front of the device, except these ones are targeted for the back. And then I have a lot of different helper objects like edge wheels and different things that you can use to basically drop in and create extra. It's a very easy way to add extra functionality to your app really quickly. A lot of blind testing because dev kits are going out shortly, but most other third-party developers have not have had access to our dev kits yet. So we've had some that have come through and implemented the SDK without actually having the hardware on hand. Um, and they just ship us an IPA and we play with it and it's worked great. You can see some of the games online and videos and whatnot. It's pretty straightforward. It's very simple. So what's the process for defining a new API for these new gestures? From your, from the third party or for me, the SDK writer? Uh, for the SDK writer. It's a lot of work. The gestures have actually been one of the more complicated parts of the system because we want it to mimic and feel just like Apple's gesture recognizers. That way it's familiar. We put a lot of effort in it. Those actually aren't released right now in the current SDK that you download. Those will be coming in a few, probably in about six weeks. So we've been working on that pretty heavily, um, but it's a lot of work. Are you able to integrate your device into like, uh, so you can use springboard gestures on the, uh, I mean, gestures on the springboard, like launch apps and stuff? Does Apple give you that kind of access? They do give us that access, but we're being very careful about how much core OS interaction we actually do 
um, just by the nature that you're actually holding the device um, in your hand, you know, there's going to be a lot of what would, what would be classified as noise. You know, how do we isolate and detect what is a touch and what's just you holding the device? Which is actually why we moved to a pressure-sensitive technology as opposed to a capacitive touch tech. So our dev kits to date, or our demo units, have all been CapTouch, which is the same tech that's on the front of your phone. But the ability for that technology to really isolate and detect what would be noise or accidental or, you know, non-real touches is very limited. So we moved to a pressure tech, which it works almost identically to CapTouch from the user's perspective, but our ability to detect and say, and hey, that's just them holding it, that's a kind of a grip position, or that's such a light touch that's really not intentional, is really extended. We can do a lot more noise detection. But even with that extra noise detection, we we don't want to have you activating or doing things to the root OS, like you know, navigating Springboard or launching apps, unless it's really intentional. So we have thought about adding really complex custom gestures, like squeeze the device really hard for three seconds to launch uh, Evernote or Safari or something. We do have the ability to do that, and that is something we're exploring. We may add that in the future. So, so kind of like a fast app switching idea. That kind of access comes along with the MFI program? Yeah, yep. Yeah. Can you tell us what other kind of things you can do, or is that under NDA? Trying to think of what else would be kind of a no-brainer. Uh, keyboard input is is an option. Airplay functionality, Wi-Fi, WAN discovery, basically. I don't know. There's 500 pages, so <laughs> I can't. <laughs> there's a lot. They open up a lot. Dramatic reading next week. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, is there any way to get that information without actually being in the program? No, technically not. If they opened up that more, it would really change things. There's a lot you can do now with Bluetooth 4.0, especially. It used to be that unless you were in the made for iPhone program, you really didn't have any option other than Wi-Fi. And then I guess people figured out how to use the headphone jack to send data using audio, which is low data rate. But I think Bluetooth 4.0 has opened up a lot of possibilities. And I'm curious, Joel, if you have, maybe outside of, of the work on Census, if you have any experience with the sort of newish Bluetooth 4.0 stuff that's uh, coming up. A little bit. I've definitely gone to all their sessions at WWDC this year. There's some little um, demo units that we have floating around the office that we've been playing with. So I've done a little bit, but nothing with like an actual project, mostly just tinkering. Yeah, the BLE spec is really interesting. Uh, it's, it's not high throughput, but it is fast. It, it's great for like a game controller type thing, or you know those small amounts of data discovery services. You know, drop those eye beacons around your retail shop. Those types of scenarios, it looks great for. I've played around with it a little. I, I haven't also haven't worked on a, a real project, but just for fun stuff. And there's a lot you can do with it. It's certainly not the same throughput as you might get on the lightning connector with USB or Wi-Fi, but it's very easy to get up and running. And I, I think we're seeing that because there are a lot of accessories that are sort of being announced and coming out that are using Bluetooth 4.0, and some of those can't really be done with other technologies, like uh, these Bluetooth 4.0 deadbolts. That I think there are like four companies making deadbolts that use Bluetooth 4.0 to detect when you're nearby and unlock the door. That's pretty cool. So anyway, I'm excited about iPhone hardware possibilities compared to even just like two or three years ago. You don't want a lightning connector with a deadbolt? Plug your phone uh, into your door and then have it open? <laughs> that might be safer. <laughs> it might be. There was a WWDC session uh, this year on an iBeacon and BLE. They basically showed 
how they're going to develop the iWatch, which is basically they put a push notification service on top of BLE. So they actually have a slide in there that actually shows a watch, <laughs> uh, basically showing all your notifications and giving you uh, functionality communication back to the iPhone from the watch all over BLE and one and the service they built on top of the BLE stack. So I don't know if that, that's of interest to you and you want to look at that. I forget what session it is, but it's definitely really interesting to see how they're, how Apple internally is already leveraging that to, to kind of pave the road for upcoming devices. Yeah, I was at that session and I, I think it was interesting to see some of that stuff because I think you're right that it gave a hint as to what Apple's thinking about internally. But the cool thing is everything they showed in that session is available to people outside of Apple. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a lot you can do. I'm actually surprised we haven't seen more accessories take advantage of that. I would have figured that we would have seen a lot of accessories out already to do some of those cool things. I think Pebble, the watch, Pebble just released an update, I think last week, to do that type of integration. So I've actually got my Pebble on right now, and they did just in the last week an update. And so now you can get all of your notifications. Anything that's in Notification Center is pushed to the watch. There you go. So one other thing that I'm curious about with a lot of this stuff, is there any way to compromise the security of the phone by plugging something into the lightning port or by uh, pairing the phone to it over Bluetooth? So do I have to grant access to the device when I plug it in? Yeah, you do. You do now. Now you do. Um, in iOS 6, you didn't. In iOS 7, it's going to ask you if you want to trust this accessory. And I'm not sure at what level, what permissions it's going to ask you. Like if it'll ask you to, because you can get it at contacts, you can get it at library or your music library and all that different stuff. I'm not sure if it asks you for each individual permission or not. Yeah, just it's interesting. So if you leave your phone unlocked and you plug something into it, and or somebody else plugs something into it, then they could compromise your phone. Yeah. Well, there was that whole man in the middle problem that that cropped up from like those charging stations. I don't, I don't know if you heard about that, but they had basically put in a computer behind these charging stations, uh, you know, like the airport, like the quick charge. When you plug it into your iPhone, it'll basically just rip through your iPhone and grab all of your contacts, as much data as it could grab over these protocols, and then store it. And <laughs> that was much more aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime there's any sort of data connection that happens, uh, the iPhone asks you if, if you trust the trust the other end. So does that mean, well, I guess it depends on what the census is capable of, but do you have to build in then security protocols on the census to protect the security of the phone once they trust your accessory? Not really. Because you don't talk to the outside world. Yeah, we don't talk to the outside world, yeah. You you just keep track of when somebody pushes something on their phone. Basically. So what is the development interface to, like, the Lightning Connector? Are you doing that in, is that in C? Yes, the firmware is written in C. So our, our microprocessor is just a, an ARM chip. And then we have some other, other things down there to facilitate all that information. But it's just an ARM chip, and we, we talk over USB, over IAP2, et cetera. So just lots of stacks. Okay. Had you done much C before developing the embedded stuff? Yeah, I had done enough to where I could get my hands dirty. However, there's so much going on, I had to bring in some help to get some of that firmware done and written faster. So we did a little consulting and contract work for kind of early development. And then recently, we actually brought in a full-time edit engineer to help out that development. So we have a lot of features on the roadmap that need to get done here in the next few months. So we're actually looking for another C engineer. So if you know anyone in Minneapolis. (laughs) 
Okay, sounds good. So you had done you know Objective C before that. What are some of the gotchas that people may not realize going from Objective C to C? I think Joe is uh, talking about actual firmware development, which is yeah. a whole kind of different world anyway. Yeah, it, it's um, there's no object-oriented premise to C. The memory management is much more heavy than just, you know, throwing retains and release, releases on objects, although with ARC you don't have to do that anymore. But, yeah, you, you do a lot of allocation and freeing up of memory, and it's, it gets really constrained because you only have a few kilobytes of memory to work with. That fills up pretty fast. Oh, definitely. No, I ask because I got my start doing embedded C way back when, so going to Objective-C wasn't a problem. And going back down to the lower level, I can understand that. But if you've been working in kind of the Objective-C world where you have objects and stuff like that, just kind of wondering what the reverse process might be like. So that's why I asked. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I did C and C++ early enough to where I wasn't feel like I was going relearning something new or learning something new. It was just kind of like, oh, yeah, I did this while ago. I love teaching people C and watching their heads explode when they're trying to figure out how many stars or ampersands to put in front of something. <laughs> We're teaching them how to do objects with C. Yeah, you were doing more than two asterisks. <laughs> really confusing. Yeah, yeah. there's all the way down. <laughs> so when can we get the census? When can we see this? We are in the middle of manufacturing all of our dev kits, so plastic is being tooled right now, and first shot should be in a few weeks. And all our circuit boards are being printed, etc. Right now, so. We expect everything to kind of come together end of November, early first week of December. And we're printing about a thousand dev kits for release over the course of December and January. And we'll actually be doing a few hackathons in December is the current plan. So we'll be taking a few shows in probably the major cities. So New York, Chicago, San Francisco, maybe Bloomington and Denver, Denver area. And then we'll definitely be doing a few in Minneapolis as well. So definitely keep your eye on our portal, on the developer portal at getcensus.com. Sign up for newsletters, etc., and we'll be coming to a city near you, hopefully, and probably handing out dev kits, and also you can apply for a dev kit on the website as well, and hopefully you would get in the first round. If not, most likely you would get in the second round. So second round, we're it's still planning, but it'll be thousands of units that we'll be shipping out Q1. And then we're looking at a, a consumer retail launch is still up in the air. Depends on how fast we can make them and a lot of other certifications, et cetera. But hardware's hard. As like I said, it's, it's not like, hey, I haven't finished my product. And now I can distribute it to a million people on the app store. It's actually, we have to go through months of manufacturing and certification and it, it takes a long time. So sometimes it's hard to predict. It sounds like a really interesting process though. So how do you go about marketing something like this? I mean, you talked a little bit about kind of the hack events and things like that, but how do you get the word out that people can get something like this and some of the capabilities that it has? I'll talk mostly about the consumer market. The VI market is kind of its entity into its own, so we'll leave that one alone. For the consumer market, we were at CES last year, probably a little too soon, but it was good. We had some good publicity. And then we do go through to all like the developer conferences, so GDC, ADC, CES again this year will be there with uh, just like a, a meeting room though to line up kind of just small uh, individual interactions with uh, publications and things like that. But otherwise, yeah, the market strategy is get into retail and get in front of the consumers however you can. So we will be looking at existing app content providers to help kind of be our sales team as well 
for instance, you will, you have a game that has 10,000 daily active users and you've integrated the SDK into your application and you want to maybe re-monetize or make some more money off of your consumer base while offering something substantial for their money. Our SDK will include kind of a separate part, which is the SDK, or the uh, census UI. It's kind of what I'm calling it. You can basically drop in an order form directly into your application saying, hey, my game or my application works better with census. Would you, you know, are you interested? And they can watch a little video, see it in action. Like, yeah, that's great. And they order it. And then we're going to give a very large commission to you for basically selling census directly to your consumer. Anything from five to $20 is on the table right now. So that's a pretty large number for you know, app developers to find a new way to monetize their applications and their users while at the same time not feel like it's a freemium play and you're just gouging them for coins. That's kind of part of our strategy. Details are still being worked out on exactly what that revenue is going to look like for the app developers. It's going to be significant. I can tell you, I can tell you that. So what type of developers should jump on this opportunity? Give us some ideas. Everyone. <laughs> Honestly, everyone. Specific, I mean, specifics. Uh, game developers, for sure. It's kind of the no-brainer. If you have a scroll view, you can do it with one hand from a finger, from your index finger in the back of your hand without getting two hands in there. So that's something that any, like any app can use. Yes. Simple functionality to really heavy fun- integration. Anyone and everyone in between. Yeah, that's one thing that I can kind of see this going toward is uh, the power users on the iPhone where, you know, they basically can set up some kind of custom gesture, you know, on the back or the front or the side, or they can touch it in certain places in certain ways or, you know, interact with the phone in new ways and have it do common things for them that aren't necessarily built into the app where you can only touch the front of the screen. Yeah, we have a few like easy wins, situations like that where it's like a squeeze to scroll or the, you know, the scroll on the side, like the BlackBerry scroller. Those are kind of the obvious no-brainers, but we look at it as kind of a, a new playground, you know, much like people are having to deal with the leap motion, which is all infrared cameras and, you know, hand-waving gesture recognition. You know, it's kind of this new sandbox, new playground to work with. We're still kind of an exploratory phase with leap and some of those, some of those other devices. And I think we're going to have that same kind of period with, with census. You're going to have, you know, the kind of an abstracted, extra touch input panel and how do I interface with my apps and much like you know our touch interfaces evolved from on the front of the device when Apple released you know iOS there was no gesture recognition it was just touches you know then they added the gesture recognition and then they added you know the pinch zoom scroll they added things that we'd never thought of um, necessarily and we still continue to see iterations on that there's a great browser called Dolphin browser uh, for the for iOS that is actually very gesture recognition heavy really interesting so you know I think we're going to see a lot of new interface design come about because of census and it's going to be really interesting to see what people what people do with it and then what gets adopted by the community at large very cool yeah i think uh, you should do one of those launch events in salt lake city just throwing that out there salt lake city yeah you can think about that okay um are there any other aspects of this that we didn't ask about because we probably just didn't know to ask about it? Well, we covered a lot. Is... I guess my, my closing comment would be don't be afraid to play. Uh-huh. Um, grab like a Raspberry Pi or something and throw on one of the BLE modules and start having some fun. Uh, you'll never know what ideas you come up with and what may turn into a you know very viable product. Um, and then mm-hmm. kickstart it or something silly. You know? Sounds like fun to me. 
if you want to play like that, you have still have to be in the MFI program, don't you? Unless you do Bluetooth, I guess. Yeah, if you do the BLE, then you don't have to be in that program. So there's actually a if you're just playing around and not trying to develop product or not at least maybe at the start, there's actually a serial cable you can buy from Red Park. Maybe I should have one of my picks. <laughs> anyway, there's a serial cable you can buy. Them. They're, they're actually in the Made for iPod program. You wouldn't be able to sell your app on the App Store, but just for getting your phone talking to hardware over a cable. That's a super simple way to do it. I, I'd forgotten about that solution. But yeah, that is definitely an option. So it kind of provides that intermediate interface to talk to your application through an external accessory session. And then um, you just have to implement the serial protocol on your end, which is pretty easy. Yeah, there's not really anything easier than serial on an embedded device. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, I think we're getting close to the end of our time, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, start to wrap this up. But thanks for coming, Joel. It's been really interesting to talk about this, and hopefully we can inspire some other ideas of just some really cool stuff that you can do with your iPhone and possibly even with your Mac. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go ahead and do the picks. Rod, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I just have one pick today. Um. I saw on a KSL, our local news station, a story about a doctor who invented a app and a device that is being compared to the Star Trek tricorder, and it, it does diagnosis. You take a blood sample, and then you plug it into this device, which is attached to your smartphone, and basically uses the camera to analyze your blood and tell you what's going on in about you know a few minutes. So this looked look pretty cool. So that's my pick. It's iCalQ. And I'll put a link in the notes. Awesome. Andrew, what are your picks? I have a few picks today. A couple of them are kind of self-serving, but Mixed Key just launched an app in the last couple of days as we record this, and I this is what I've been working on for a year, and I'm really excited that it's out. It's called Flow, and it's uh, our take on live performance DJing. So this is an app that DJs will get, but it's uh, the big feature is that it'll smoothly beat, match, and mix between portions of the same song. And then... As part of my work on that, I actually, so, so the, the app supports MIDI controllers, and going along with our, our topic today, I, I actually open source. We open source the framework we wrote to, to make it easier to talk to MIDI controllers, and it's, it's for both Mac and iOS, and it's called MIK MIDI. It's on GitHub. And then my, my last pick is Blue Giga, which is a company that makes Bluetooth LE modules, and they make modules like I talked about that are off the shelf that already have regulatory compliance that have been certified so you can use them in your products. And they've got dev kits that you can use to get up and running with Bluetooth LE and an iOS device quite quickly. And so those are my picks. Awesome. Jane, what are your picks? All right, I'm going to kiss up to the to guests a little bit. I'm going to pick a, a game that's been out for year two called Conquer, Q-O-N-Q-R. I actually, I actually met Joel because he had done the iPhone version of this game. It's a game that was done by some local guys from Minneapolis, and they're all kind of .NET people. And Joel helped them out with the iPhone version. But it's kind of a risk on the world stage. It's location-based, so you actually deploy your your bots or whatever from where you actually are. So you fight it over your own neighborhood. Uh, it's kind of fun. So that's oh, my pick. Disclaimer, I did version 1.0 over a year ago, and it was only involved for about a month. <laughs> oh, really? okay. I did, I did know you had done some other stuff with it. So, no, yeah, no, no, it, it's fine. I actually am getting more involved. Um, they need some more help. So I've, I've been coming back and kind of helping them clean up the code base uh, over the last year or in the last couple months. But um, they're, they're doing some great things. Uh, I'll similar plug and keep an eye on it. So, so all the good parts, that was Joel. That was that's, what, that's what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> it's getting better. 
Awesome. All right, so uh, I I just got back from RubyConf, and uh, I had a pretty positive experience. Tried some new things, and so the first thing that I'm going to pick is actually Airbnb. By the time I actually got around to booking the hotel, all the hotel rooms in the conference block were taken, and so um, rooms were going for like $550 a night, and I just wasn't willing to pay that. So I went on Airbnb, and I found a an apartment that I could stay at, and that cost me $500 for the whole trip. And it, it was an all right apartment. It, you know, it was obviously much cheaper than a hotel room, but, you know, it had like a window unit, air conditioner and stuff. So it, it was cooler than outside, but not as cool as I would have liked. But other than that, it was nice. It was nice being in a, you know, kind of in my own little space and it was bigger than a hotel room. So, I mean, lots of, lots of, uh, homey features like that. So overall, I was pretty happy with it. So uh, Airbnb is one pick. The other pick is uh, Delta Airlines. Now, they, they have the, uh, a hub here in Salt Lake City. So I usually travel on them. I've traveled some of the discount airlines that service Salt Lake City, but I have never, ever, ever been happy with their service. And uh, Delta has always been pretty good. So um, I'm going to pick them too. Joel, what are your picks? First one is actually uh, a to-do list application, uh, but it has a lot of snark, and it's modeled after uh, Portal's AI. It's called Carrot, so meetcarrot.com. It's fun. It it, uh, it harasses you on a daily basis to get stuff done, and uh, I just it makes me laugh every time I use it. So it's, it's great. Um, another pick would be um, if, when it, for the uh, small amounts of consulting work that I do, I use Harvest which is a great uh, program to keep track of time and automate your invoicing and keeping track of payments and everything. Um, I've tried a lot of different solutions, but I found Harvest to kind of be the, the best, especially when it comes to working with lots of clients and trying to, you know, build by the minute. So that's, um, I think it's Get Harvest. Yep, it is. So I've, my been using, I've been using Carrot for a few months. I like it. It keeps me on task by insulting me constantly. Yeah, I, I use Harvest for my consultancy and stuff. So I've been pretty happy with them. So yeah, I guess that's it. So uh, thanks for coming, Joel. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we'll wrap up the show. We'll catch y'all next week.